Last week I began the first part of this second part of the message on, Is Jesus God? And seriously, that is the question of all questions because of all that rides on it, not just for Christians, but for all of mankind. Because you see, the prevailing theology of the day, if I can even call it a theology, it isn't exactly, but the prevailing spiritual or religious mindset globally is what would be summed up in the term universalism, which simply posits that first, if there is a heaven, then obviously everybody, whoever was or ever will be, are all going to heaven. And if there isn't a heaven, well then, you know, we just come, we put in our time, and then we just kind of go into nothingness. But again, the prevailing view out there, and I'm telling you, even among somewhat biblically literate Christians who just aren't used to thinking beyond the Sunday school answers, is at the end of the day, basically everybody's going to heaven. With the exception maybe of, you know, Adolf Hitler. And I hear it in people's speech. I hear it in their language. I'm thinking of somebody in my family right now who knows biblical answers because they've been thrust upon her, forced upon her by my brother and me in a minor way. And she knows, and I know she knows, and I know she believes, and yet she will still refer to her distant relatives who I was old enough to know and have absolutely no reason in the world to believe that some of them had any kind of faith in any God, much less Jesus Christ. And yet she'll still say things like, oh, I just can't wait to get up to heaven and see, you know. (laughs) And I'm like, (sighs) so is Jesus God and does it make a difference? Well, I have to tell you, concerning universalism and this uh, this idea that all roads lead to heaven, that's just another iteration of universalism, Jesus utterly destroys that notion. If Jesus is not God, then Jesus was the nastiest, most intolerant bigot known to mankind. Throughout Jesus' life, He is pushing his deity in the faces of the masses. And the only sensible statement that, honestly, anybody can make under the unmistakable circumstances of Jesus' life is that if Jesus was not God Almighty, he deserved to be executed. If the biblically illiterate masses through history knew the Bible instead of just a few minuscule cherry-picked sound bites pushed on them by biblically illiterate so-called experts of the Bible, they would be able to see right through their demonically impassioned subtleties to denigrate the name which is above all names, and yet sounding ever so congenial and sincere. As the serpent slips away just out of view. This is the approach of many 
most of our modern-day documentaries on the Bible or on Jesus or on Christianity. And so just coincidentally, I offer this, beware, because the History Channel is at it again. And either there was confusing information online, either starting today or starting last Monday, there's a uh, multiple-week series, new series called Jesus, His Life. And again, it's the History Channel. And I looked at the producers, I looked at the consultants, etc., etc. It's not worth your time. Two things that I'm going to address today is, did Jesus claim to be God Almighty? And if he did, was he? In the 33 years Jesus walked on the sin-soiled soils of earth, he revealed his deity to all who, to all who were willing to see it. And every step of the way, the religious experts of the day, called the Pharisees, those who were ever so devout and spiritual, they get smacked down by Jesus over and over again as Jesus uncovers their spiritual bankruptcy. Which means, again, if all religions are true and everyone's faith is valid, if all roads, in fact, do lead to heaven, then Jesus is a bigot. As I begin, it is the last day of the festival of what was called the Feast of Booths to the Jews, or Sukkot in the Hebrew. They made makeshift lean-tos in which they were to live for the seven days of the festival, which was to help them remember their heritage and about their, their ancestors' wilderness wanderings out in the willy-wags. And so they lived in these Spartan, just basically sticks made with maybe sheet wrapped on it, thrown on it or whatever. And they lived there to remind themselves, again, of the hardship, but also of the glorious provision that God had brought his people during that time. Now, as you know, within Judaism, all the ceremonies, all the festivals, the feasts, the, the, just every, the sacrifices, everything carried meaning. And so it was to be done precisely and meticulously. And one of those things in the Festival of Booths was that water, water was a prominent part of the celebration. And water would be ceremonially brought for the first seven days, and it was poured into a specially made, designed ceremonial basin next to the altar of sacrifice. And after seven days of living in those Spartan dwellings, then they would return to the comfort of their dwellings. And, of course, that was a time of great rejoicing. So we're in the book of John and we begin. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Okay, what the heck is Jesus talking about? Well, we don't have to guess Because why? Because Scripture interprets Scripture. And it is masterfully poignant that Jesus chooses the last day of the festival, stepping in himself, replacing the ceremonial water with himself, declaring he is the water that brings and gives life. And even the water 
the meaning of it and what Jesus meant is explained in verse 37. But this, referring to the water, Jesus spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The religious experts of the day are, of course, arguing amongst themselves as to what Jesus meant and who he was. And suddenly, they're kind of getting it. Not getting it unto belief, but getting it as to, hey, wait a minute here. It's worse than we thought. And so, of course, they become outraged knowing that Jesus is not there just claiming to be one of the many prophets. He wasn't there claiming just to be the good rabbi or a nice guy, but claiming to be God Almighty. Not a God, not one of many gods, but the God of the universe. And their anger leads them once again to attempt to seize him so as to kill him. But they couldn't. In chapter 8, the festival has either just finished or it's just beginning to wind down. Where we just saw water as a prominent theme in the ceremony, lights also were a big and prominent theme as well. And a candelabra was lit as part of the celebration, but it was not lit at the end of the festival celebration. And so now again, it's against this backdrop that Jesus comes, he enters the temple court, the very place where the candelabra for the feast would have been displayed and lit, and Jesus again proclaims in verse 12, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Every step of the way, Jesus is pushing his deity in the faces of the religious leaders. And every step of the way, the religious leaders, those who are so devout and so spiritual, get smacked down by Jesus, telling them they are spiritually bankrupt. And the religiously religious know-it-alls protest. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, You're testifying about yourself. So your testimony is not true. What they're actually saying here is that regardless what Jesus claims for himself, his words are invalid. They are worthless because according to Jewish law, any legal determination of something being true or or false or being able to be, to use our language, accepted um, into court as admissible as evidence have to be validated by two or more witnesses. And, of course, it's just Jesus there speaking from his hat as far as they're concerned. But listen to what Jesus says, well aware of the laws concerning valid testimony, John 14, 8, 14. Well, even if I testify about myself, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I'm not judging anyone. But you know what? Even if I do judge, my judgment is true for I am not alone in it, but I and the father who sent me. Even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself 
and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Now, the strategy here that Jesus is using is brilliant. Jesus is making them, the know-it-alls, play by their own rules. Again, referring to Old Testament law regarding what is admissible as evidence, while stating that he is within their own rules. Why? Because there are two witnesses. He, Jesus, God the Son, and He, the Father, God the Father. So even if there was only one witness, though, he makes the point that because of who I am, that's more than enough. Their response is what we would expect. Verse 19, first part. And so they were saying to him, okay, where's your father? Where's your father? Now listen carefully to Jesus' reply. And be thinking about what I call the cultural pap. That is just a... That we hear about tolerance and respect for others' beliefs. Now, understand, we do need to respect and tolerate others' beliefs. So don't misunderstand me. That's why I have this second phrase coming. But the way it is used today... It is cultural code for do not criticize, do not correct, or in any way ever imply that someone else may be wrong. Let me further add that if you are offended by what, by what I'm going to say, your offense is not with me, it is with Jesus. So the annoyed, the intolerant, the disrespectful experts indict, where is your father? Second part of verse 19, Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. Jesus makes the point over and over and over that any person who does not believe in the Jesus of the Bible, no matter how sincere, no matter how devout or spiritual that person might be, Jesus is clear that they do not, they cannot worship the one and only true God because Jesus is the one and only true God. So any pretense of belief in or any pretense of loyalty to or worship of anyone or anything else is empty. And again, I will concede that this is blatant bigotry on Jesus' part. Unless Jesus is God Almighty. Because only God determines truth. Not me, not you, not culture, not government. Not anyone or anything. And so Jesus lays it out. Verse 19b, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Think about what Jesus is saying here. Why? To know him is to know the father. To deny Jesus is to deny the father. And so Jesus pushes the implications of this further in verse 21, saying, I go away, and you shall seek me, and you shall die in your sin, because where I'm going, you cannot come. To these religious, hyper-devout, super-spiritual people, Jesus says, you believe in a different God of your own making, for I am right in front of you. And Jesus piles on. 
just for emphasis, not because he is mean-spirited or hateful, but because extreme situations demand extreme actions. And what is more extreme than watching someone racing to hell and feeling good about it? Verse 23, Jesus says to them, you're from below. I'm from above. Do you realize what he's saying here? Talk about intolerant. Talk about judgmental, hateful, mean-spirited. He's telling them they're going to hell. Hmm. You are of this world. I'm not of this world. I said, therefore, to you that you shall die in your sins. Why? Because unless you believe that I am, and your translations have the word in there in italics, usually he, you shall die in your sins. All right. I'm giving you fair warning. The translators have tried to smooth out what would be an awkward reading if they translated the original word for word. Because what is written in the Koine Greek is that unless you believe that ego a me, which literally means unless you believe that I am, I am, you shall die in your sins. You see, ego a me is redundant. And when Jesus is speaking in the Gospels of himself, he does this in respect and in a, in a repetitive way to his ontology, to the nature of his being. And so he says, just some examples, Ego a me, I am, I am the bread of life. In chapter 6, I am, I am the light of the world, chapters 8 and 9. I am, I am the gate in 10. I am the good shepherd in 10. I am the resurrection in the life in 11. I am, I am the vine in 15. I am, I am the way, the truth, and the life in 14. When again, he is speaking of himself in terms of who he really is. He uses that phrase of redundancy of saying, I am, I am. He used ego, a me, not ego, not a me, not a me, ego, not even lego my ego, but ego, a me. So what? Big so what? Exactly. Okay, so. Enter the Septuagint. The what? Release the Septuagint. I mean the Kraken. The Septuagint is the earliest translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. It started about 300 B.C. by 70 scholars, and over the total course of time, it was finished about 132 B.C. It is the Greek, again, translation of the Old Testament. So we go to the Septuagint to Exodus chapter 3. It is that well-known historical narrative where God appears in the burning bush speaking to Moses. God identifies himself to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 6, as I am. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, it says, Ego, a me. 
I am, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. When Moses asked, remember, he came up with every excuse under the sun. I don't want to, no, this isn't going to go over well when I go back and tell the people. Because they're going to, well, okay, fine, whatever, I'll do it. But but they're going to ask, all right, who told me to come and tell them? I don't want to just say, well, you know, it's this burning bush thing. and everything. So give me a name. And God says in verse 14, I am who I am. The Septuagint scholars in the Greek write it, Ego, Ami. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, Ego, Ami, I am has sent me to you. The incident of the burning bush is unquestionably God Almighty, the one called the great I am. Now, Keep that thought. Let's go back to Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 25. So the religious leaders were saying to Jesus, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you. Oh, I'll bet. But he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. And they did not realize that he had been speaking to them about God the Father. Because this is what spiritual blindness looks and sounds like. Jesus answers their questions. He puts things right under their nose, answers more and more and more narrow and focused into being clearer and clearer as to who he is. And they didn't understand here that he was talking about God the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, I am, ego eimi, and I do nothing of my own initiative. And, of course, the religious leaders continue in their rejection of Jesus' answers. But in verse 30, it says that as he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Not many of the religious leaders meaning all the other people that were around listening and taking it all in. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Now, in the latter portion of chapter 8 of John's Gospel, Jesus and the Pharisees now really start escalating things, and it isn't pretty. Jesus pulls no punches, denigrating the Pharisees' ridiculous claims on their boastfulness about their 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 uh, heritage in Father Abraham, the father of the Jewish religion, basically, and all that that means to the Jew. And he's 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 just just criticizing the fact that they would even dare to call Abraham, who was a great man of faith in Jehovah God, and by that, faith in the coming Messiah, and they're claiming his as their father. And Jesus tells them, cleaning it up for the audience here, that they are illegitimate children. You got that? Adults, it's what they are. Now this is almost the lowest slam that Jesus can deliver to these masters of Judaism. But it's the truth. But there's yet one lower rung to go down. And it comes out again when the religious people accuse Jesus of being demon-possessed. Jesus answers in John eight forty nine, I do not have a demon, 
but I do honor my father and you dishonor me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And of course, the Pharisees now are besides themselves with rage. Verse 52, the Jews say to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. Abraham now at this point is gone for a thousand years or more. More actually. And the prophets also died. But you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than father Abraham who died and the prophets died too. Who do you make yourself out to be? Like I said, Jesus gets more and more focused coming down and they're getting it, which is why they are angrier and angrier. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, then I'll be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father, Abraham, listen to this. Jesus, age 33 or 32, somewhere in there. Your father, Abraham, who's been dead for thousand years or more, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And so the Jews said to him, what? You're not yet 50 years old. And yet, have you seen Abraham? And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, listen carefully. Before Abraham was born, ego, amy. Jehovah in the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? Tell them, ego, amy, sent you. Who are you? I am, ego, amy. Jesus doesn't say here, oh, I was born before Abraham. You see, that would have been too easy and it would have been inaccurate because it implies Jesus' existence is in relation to time. I was, past tense, born before, means Jesus had a beginning. But we are talking about the eternal God of heaven and earth who is outside of time. So the to answer properly, Jesus says, He says it the only way that he can before Abraham was born. I am. I am. And this is where the unenlightened theologians and the professors throughout the ages hurt themselves doing all kinds of linguistic and literary contortions to explain, well, what Jesus really meant here. What he meant is that he is The great I am, eternally existent. He is God Almighty. And so he answers their question, yes, he is greater than Abraham. Well, how do we know, though, that that's what they understood? How about reading the next verse? Therefore, they, the religious know-it-alls, picked up stones to throw at him. Well, of course, they were really ticked off. You saw Sergio Garcia yesterday in the golf tournament. He was losing it, man. He was ready to throw clubs and hit people. 
No, they weren't just angry. Stoning is the penalty under Jewish law for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. And this won't be the last time that they attempt to execute him for the same thing. In John chapter 10, we read another setting. I and the Father are one, Jesus says, and the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? And the Jews answered him, for a good work. No, we don't stone you for a good work, but we're stoning you for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So come on, pseudo-theologians and scholars. Don't tell us what you are going to put words into Jesus' mouth as to what he meant when the people at the day, influent in the culture and the language, have for us told us what they understood him to be saying. You are demolished and destroyed. Remember that, college students. The Bible interprets the Bible. Or we're still good. <sighs> One more. John chapter 14. We have the most potent conversations between Jesus and his disciples revealing who he is. 14.1, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How in the world can we know the way? Now, let's remember that the disciples, okay? It's too easy to think of the disciples as these guys who were with Jesus, and because they were with Jesus, man, they had it all scoped out, and they had it all together, and these guys were theologians, budding, had it rounded, full, true. I mean, they had it together. Really? That's why Peter denied him three times when the heat came on. That's why the, the rest of them scattered when Jesus was arrested. That's why on the road... To Emmaus, the disciples, the word in the Greek says they were skuthropos. That doesn't mean they were bummed out. It means they were in the pit of depression and despair because they thought now, they even says it, that the one we had placed all our hopes in, we thought he was going to be the one to deliver Israel, Jesus, and now he's dead. So they're, they're in, in a learning process themselves. And trying to piece by piece. And they are. They're coming along. Even though they've been with him. And Jesus is with them. And he's talking to them about heaven. And fortunately, Thomas is the guy in the group. Who while everyone else is looking at the ground. For fear of being called on by the teacher. Right? I don't know if some of you know what that's like. But that was, that was, my, that was my standard operating procedure. Okay, so who knows? Uh, hmm. Do not make eye contact with that teacher because he will call on you. But Thomas was different. <laughs> Thomas just comes out with what everyone else sitting there is probably thinking. Come on, teacher. We, we, don't, we don't know where you're going. So how in the world are we supposed to know how to get there? And Jesus says, Thomas... 
Ego a me. I am the way of life. I am, I am the truth. I am, I am the life. No one comes to the Father. No one comes to the Father. How? But by me. But what about if they feel real strongly about the other road that they're on, the other path? Let me say this again, Thomas. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All roads do not lead to heaven. If you believe in me, you have to believe in the Father because we are one. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. There's still one more bold disciple in the group named Philip. Philip pipes up. Lord, okay. Look, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough. That's, it's enough for us. Just show us the Father. Reminds me of all people over the years who have said to me, talking to them about Jesus and all that. Well, you know what? Okay. Well, if God just appears to me right here, right now, then I'll believe. So here's Philip going, show us the Father. And that'll be it. It'll be the deal closer. No more questions. No more yeah, buts. No ifs, ands, or buts. Verse 9, John 14. Jesus says to Philip, Have I been with you for so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? <laughs> Mic drop, kaboom, end of discussion. Because only God can save mankind from our sins. And so he became human while still being God to satisfy his own justice against all ungodliness, taking upon himself his own wrath against our sin. No, hear this, no other faith system ever has the answer for man's sin. None. Paying the just penalty of our manifold sins, being himself without sin, death could not hold Jesus, and so he stepped out of the grave to take his place once again in heaven to prepare a place for all those who believe. Jesus both claimed to be God, and he was God and is God, for no one could claim the things that he did and do and not be God Almighty. And now going back just a couple of weeks, we were talking about circular reasoning, meaning Jesus being God means the Bible is, in fact, the very word of God. It means all roads do not lead. To heaven, as he has said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If this is not true, Jesus was executed for being a poser, a fraud, 
and a fake, and humanity should cheer his death. But if he was who he said he was, all mankind will fall down and worship him. All mankind, past, present, and future, will fall down and worship him. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. For the believer who puts his life in the hands of Jesus God Almighty, we are assured eternity and we worship freely before him now as a joy of our lives. But those who have rejected him will be risen from the graves unto the final judgment. For as the writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto man to die once. And after this comes the judgment. And all of those who said, yeah, no, nah, mm-mm. They will be forced to bow before the name that is above all names. Right before they are cast into the pit of hell. We see a vastly different picture of Jesus when we actually read the whole Bible. Instead of being the always, always happy, backslapping, way to go, give me high fives, you're going to hell, but man, you feel good about it, so I feel good about it. Yeah, no, I don't want to disrespect your faith and tell you you're wrong, that you're going to be separated from me for all eternity. Heaven forbid, I wouldn't do that. That wouldn't be the kind thing to do. Are you kidding me? That is the most kind thing you can do. If you saw a dancing electrical power line that just got blown down by the wind in front of your house, and you know how they do if you've ever seen that. It's pretty freaky. Because they sit there and they bounce and they spark. And here's little Tommy, the neighborhood kid, right? Whoa! Hey, that looks fun! So here's Tommy. He's going over to kind of play with it, right? Is this what kindness is? Hey, uh, Tommy. Uh, you know what? Boy, I don't want to impede your freedom of expression. But uh, I, I have to tell you, that's, it's not going to go well for you. Okay? Forgive me for being so judgmental, but it's not going to go well for you. And so he goes, yeah, you're an old crotchety man, whatever. And he keeps going toward it. And you go, well, I try. I would say you are a despicable individual because that is a situation because of the desperation of it where if you do not apprehend, tackle, throw to the ground, grab, wrestle away, whatever you got to do to save him, then you're derelict in your responsibility as a human being. And guess where do you think all the cultural pap originates from in our culture? Now we have to be kind and respectful of other people's beliefs and everything else. No, everybody, you know, you've got your way, you got my way. When you comprehend for a moment a glimpse of the reality of eternity in hell, it doesn't mean you have to be belligerent or obnoxious. Hey, Mr. Mormon, 
My pastor today told me, you're going to hell, man, so you better repent. And by the way, Jesus loves you. It's not what I'm talking about. But good heavens. Satan is the spirit of Antichrist who is behind all that wonderful cultural pap about tolerance and respect. And don't impose your beliefs on anybody else because I don't like that. Do you get it? Gus, where's my guitar? Oh, I don't play guitar. Actually, I do, but that's not. Pray with me. Father in heaven, truly, I, I am baffled by many things about who you are. One of those many things is that no one comes to you unless they are drawn by your spirit. Father, I know that there are people at faith here who have been under my teaching for a long time. And yet, for whatever reasons they come, it's not because they are worshiping Jesus. Some have declared so. And so I pray, O oh God, strip away whatever that hardness is, whatever whatever demonic trap they are engulfed into where they don't even see what they are headed for in reality apart from you. And I plead, Lord, in your mercy and grace to do what you have to do to remove the blinders and unstop ears to give them faith to hear and faith to receive to the glory of your name. God, to you be the glory. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. On heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.